say Happy Easter. Thank you, Juan, for leading us in, in worship. Um, just that was our first part of worship, and now uh, welcome to all of you, and Happy Easter to our second part of worship. So, yeah, Easter uh, around the world, around the globe, um, celebrated today, uh, I guess, um, in different parts of the world. Uh, it's, it's for some just a time of thinking positive, and for others it's, hey, spring is here, and uh, it's time to get confident about life, and let's see some changes. And if you're lucky enough, the, perhaps the Easter Bunny will, will bring you some chocolate. Uh, the, the church, however, globally speaking, the church around the world today is, uh, this, is a, this is a celebration. Um, and, and, and what we're doing today is we're celebrating that a promise has been kept. A promise has been kept. And so that is the title of uh, my message today is The Promise of the Resurrection. And I thought I would start by sharing another promise that happened around 2017 that was given, and it was actually a scam. Uh, it was called the Fire Festival, spelled F-Y-R-E, the Fire Festival, the greatest party that never happened. This was a documentary on Netflix, and uh, the promise was a, uh, a luxury music experience. This was, this was all over Instagram, and it would have been telling you that you can have a music experience on a posh private island in the Bahamas. And the whole premise behind it was uh, there's going to be supermodels, there's going to be extravagant food that's there, the best time of your life, you can hang out with the rich and famous. I mean, who wouldn't want to be there, right? Uh, the premise was this charismatic salesman who was selling the idea of luxury uh, for, for anyone who, who was willing to buy it. And uh, it was a total scam. Thousands of people spent an entire college tuition worth of money uh, going to this. And it failed spectacularly because the person who made a promise was simply overconfident and didn't have anything really to offer anyone regarding his promise. It was just a failed promise, an empty promise. Today, whenever we gather to celebrate the resurrection, we're here to celebrate that a promise was truly kept. And that's because the, the person who gave the promise is trustworthy. We can believe in this person who gave us this great promise regarding the resurrection. So if you're just joining us, we are in the last uh, episode here uh, of, of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We've been touring through the book of Mark, the Gospel writer. There have been 16 chapters, and today we're on that 16th chapter. And so next week, we're going to start a new series, and we're calling, calling that series Exploring the Resurrection. So join us again next week as we begin to look at some of the lives of these people that truly began to see cha a changed life because they were exploring and experiencing the resurrection. So as we look at chapter 16 here, uh, I'm going to be sharing five promises, by the way, from this text. There are numerous promises in this text and throughout the entire Bible regarding the resurrection, but I want to draw out five promises from this passage that are of utmost um, encouragement today for you and me as we try to find hope, as we try to hang on to a promise. So let me start by reading this passage here in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And by the way, it's women it's women going to the tomb of Jesus, and while they are getting to the tomb, they're expecting to find death. 
And what do they find but life? And I start out by asking you that question. When you and I come to the resurrection, when we approach this day, what is it that you're expecting? Are you expecting, oh, this is just another day, perhaps another day full of death and uh, discouragement? Or are you truly looking for promise and for life? Well, let's find the answer here in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Then they quickly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. Well, let's just start right from the very beginning here and that there's this promise of God while we're asleep. It's beautiful. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that God's promises are being fulfilled not because we stay up late or not because we work really, really hard to help God fulfill God's promises. Verse 2, we just read it. It says, very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, while it was still dark. You see, God's miracle had already taken place while they were asleep. This is a reminder for you and for me that God is at work. God is always at work, even when you and I are asleep. Another gospel writer, Matthew, recorded in chapter 28, it says that there was a great earthquake that took place on resurrection morning. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled the stone back and sat on it. Point is that God had already done that before these folks get to the tomb. And that's because there's a promise in Psalm 121 that says, our God does not sleep. Our God does not slumber. Amidst feeling like or thinking that God might not be present, or that God has gone asleep. God is always at work. The same God who created all things and was not created himself. He exists outside of time. Another promise for us is Hebrews chapter 4 that says, Christ, our great high priest, is always praying for us. This is a profound encouragement, this promise that even while you sleep tonight, Christ, the risen Lord, will be praying for you as your great high priest. Don't forget that promise. Isaiah chapter 53 
We've mentioned this in previous weeks, but the, the prophet is writing 700 years before Christ is even on the scene, and he's, he, he's promising that God is going to make his dwelling among humanity. He's going to come into this earth. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die, and he's going to rise from the dead. And so we also read of Lamentations chapter 3 of um, that his mercies are new every morning. The implication that this promise has for me and you of the resurrection is that tonight and every night when you go to bed, expecting tomorrow perhaps to be another bad day or dark day or challenging day, remember the resurrection. Remember the promise of the resurrection that God is at work even while we sleep. Second promise here is that I want you to notice the promise of who God includes in this story. Who, who discovers the resurrection first? And if you like me, you might be thinking, well, it's the person that ran to the tomb the, the, the quickest. It was the person that perhaps had the most um, decorated reputation following Jesus. That person deserved to see Jesus first, or the resurrection first. But who is it? Who is it that we see that gets to the tomb first? The answer is women. Women arrive at the tomb first. Women are the first eyewitnesses. It's women who are going to leave the cross there on Good Friday last. For a moment, uh, these women are the first missionaries. For a moment, these women are the apostles to the apostles. Um, it was in that time, though, that women were held with low esteem, not only just uh, women in general, but, but their words were not to be listened to. And, um, and so uh, Celsus, a, a Greek philosopher writing in the second century, he um, mentions that this is the very reason why he was convinced that Christianity couldn't be real. Why in the world would a gospel writer like Mark and all the other gospel writers, for that matter, why would they include women in the story? Now, I'm going to read an excerpt from one of Celsus' writings, and by the way, this won't be easy to hear. Celsus wrote, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. That does not deserve a laugh at that moment. Um, this lets us see that God includes women in the story. And what, what God and what Jesus thinks about women is that he loves women. He wanted them to be the first ones to know about the resurrection. Many of Celsus, that Greek philosopher, many of his readers agrees that for them this was a major problem. There's no way we're going to believe in the resurrection having uh, known that women were marginalized and the testimony of women were never given much credence. There's no way we're going to believe in this. Now, historians across the spectrum, however, Christian, non-Christian of all religions, scholars, they would say, they would agree that the most historically plausible ex explanation for women being the first eyewitnesses is because they really were. They really were the first eyewitnesses. And this is just a profound, beautiful, powerful promise, encouraging promise for us regarding the resurrection. 
of who God includes in the story. That God uh, includes women here because he loves them, but he also includes people. He tends to include people that are at the bottom or even on the, the, outs, the outside of society. The people who know that they're sick. The people who know that they need a healer. The people who know that they need forgiveness. This is who the gospel is for. This is who the resurrection is for. So a summary message of the entire Bible, not only in the gospel of Mark, but the entire Bible, is that God initiates towards us, sinners. He includes us in the story. This is beautiful, that God's salvation doesn't come to a person just because of their merit, or just because of their race, or their gender, or their class. And that's because the gospel is good news. What Jesus has been sharing with his listeners is the message of repent and believe. The gospel is not advice. He wasn't giving people advice to, hey, if you get your life cleaned up, if you do a better job, you can become a follower of mine. You can be included in the story. But no, rather, I have gotten involved in your story. I come to you. Humble yourself and admit that you need me. The gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's not how well you keep the rules, but by trusting what Jesus has done for you through his perfect life and what his resurrection unleashes and unlocks in your life, the promises of God could be unlocked for you. God chooses the Marys of this world. God chooses the women and the people that need him in this world so that we can see who is it that gets into the kingdom of God. It's the, it's the one who's been forgiven. And that's because the one who's been forgiven of much loves much. The one who's been forgiven of much gives forgiveness to others greatly. Now, what comes to your mind whenever you think about God? This is a question I have an opportunity to ask in uh, many different relationships as a pastor and as I befriend people and listen to them uh, in their journey with God, in this relationship with God, I, I like to ask that question. What comes to your mind when you think about God as He looks upon you? And how does God feel about you? And for some people, too often I hear people answer it this way, that God is disappointed with me. And they'll even say, if I'm really honest, I, I think that God is disgusted with me. I think God has had it with me. And the promise of the resurrection in who God includes in the story is imagine, imagine God saying to you, my son, my daughter, I love you. I love you. You are a, you are a son, you're a daughter of the king. Another promise here, the third promise, is the promise of God in our disbelief or the promise of God in our doubt. Now again, when we see the women going to the empty tomb there in verse 1, it's a Saturday evening. They went and purchased burial spices to anoint Jesus' body. They weren't expecting a resurrection. There was some level of doubt in those people. Verse 3, Sunday morning, they're asking one another, 
on the way to the tomb, who's going to roll the stone away for us? There's some level of doubt that not just those people have, but you and I have the same level of doubt and sometimes disbelief. Many people think, hey, if you're a Christian, you just believe, right? You just have blind faith. There's sort of this assumption that there's an anti-intellectual approach to God and to Jesus. And I'll give a gentle warning here to myself and to all of you, my friends, that if you don't have a Christian faith that involves thinking and reasoning, that faith will not last you through the ups and downs of life. God will meet you in your disbelief. That's the promise. God will meet you in your doubts. God will meet you at your dead end. God will meet you in your addictions. God will meet you in your desperation. All these women and the other disciples were not exercising blind faith. They needed evidence. They were looking for evidence. Yet nobody's expecting a resurrection. Isn't that interesting? You'd think at this point, after having spent three years with Jesus, that's his disciples. If you'll go back and remember with me in the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus comes on the scene and starts his public ministry, he starts calling people to himself, and he says, come follow me. Three years later, when he dies, and there's this empty tomb, you would think that one of them, at least one of them, would have been expecting a resurrection. That one of them would have said, hey, wait a minute. Jesus several times told us that there was going to be a resurrection. You think we ought to go to the tomb and check it out? It can't hurt. No one's expecting an empty tomb. Again, notice as Mary is there, her, her words are not, as soon as she gets to the tomb, her words are not, he did it. Yay, he rose from the dead. There's a little bit of disbelief. There's a little bit of doubt, and I'm just trying to say that's us. And there's a promise of God to meet you right there. I love Garrison Keillor's quote. I've quoted him before in other sermon, but he says, if life doesn't break your heart at least once a day, you're showing a serious lack of imagination. It's a very poignant way of saying life can be filled with doubt and despair desperation, looking for a promise, looking for hope. And the promise here is that God is not afraid of your doubts. God is not afraid of these women who seem to have a little bit of disbelief. Verse 4, it says, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away. And perhaps they're thinking, wow, this looks like another twist of the knife on what's been a, a very awful week. And last couple of days prior to the resurrection, yet in verse 5, look what happens. It says they go into the tomb. This is where curiosity leads you. This is where your doubt and disbelief ought to lead us. This is the promise. Notice exactly here what the angel is saying to them as they begin to go into the tomb. The angel, first of all, does not say, hey, don't go in there. You won't like it. And by the way, don't ask any questions. When you go in there, the angel says to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't have fear about your disbelief and about your doubt. 
Verse 6, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Jesus burst out of the tomb. Once again, remember, it had already happened before they got in there, but Jesus burst out of the tomb. He's not here. He's risen. The tortured body of Christ began to breathe again. He began to walk right out of that tomb. Paul, another New Testament writer who had tremendous and thick disbelief before before becoming a believer and follower of Christ, Paul, as a believer, writes in the New Testament, if there's not a resurrection, of course he's convinced there is a resurrection, but he's posing the question, if there's not a resurrection, then you should just eat, drink, be, be happy, be merry, for tomorrow we're all just going to die. Go ahead, maximize the pleasure, minimize the pain as much as you, much as you humanly Uh, is humanly possible. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus is of no importance whatsoever. Yet because there is a resurrection and because of the promise of the resurrection, Jesus is of utmost importance. There are theories floating around throughout history and even some today being preached in opposition to the resurrection, perhaps in some churches today who really don't even believe in the resurrection. Some of those, some of those theories in opposition uh, would include the swoon theory, that Jesus merely fainted. He didn't even really die. Or that Jesus' body was stolen. And if you're one of the gospel writers that records that as Jesus rose from the dead, his linen cloths were, were folded very neatly and were left there. If you hear that there's a theory saying that someone stole the body of Jesus. According to that other gospel writer, you're thinking, wow, that was a, that was a very um, polite thief, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. There's the metaphor uh, sort of theory that's going around that, you know, resurrection is just a metaphor. Not to be taken literally. It's something that we can all relate to. It's a metaphor for think positive. There's a silver lining in every dark cloud. And if we gather enough of us and we just think positively enough, We can do it. We can get through this bad time. Smiley face emojis everywhere. I'm going to quote a Japanese writer. He's Catholic. His name is Shisako Endo. And the quote goes like this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that something amazing hit those disciples. If we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians you will find yourselves taking leaps of faith as great as if we had believed in the resurrection to start with. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone is looking towards a promise that's going to be fulfilled, that they hope will be fulfilled. Many people who are now followers of this Jesus Christ, many people who are now Christians never ever imagined that they would become a follower of Christ. They did the work of researching, searching, listening, not just putting Jesus on the shelf somewhere, but truly allowing their mind and their 
their thoughts and their emotions to take them towards the truth. And then learning it was Jesus all along that was, that was bringing them towards the truth. Lee Strobel, former atheist, found his faith by using science to disprove Christianity. He wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, How Easter Killed My Faith in Atheism. He says, The worst news I could imagine was that my agnostic wife had become a Christian. Two words shot through my mind. My first word was an expletive. My second word was divorce. But after I personally thoroughly investigated the matter of the resurrection, it would make more faith to maintain my atheism than it would to believe the resurrection of Jesus, and I became a follower. You and I perhaps have friends, I know I do, and I'm assuming you have friends, who at one point doubted and disbelieved God so vehemently and thought, there's no way I'm going to become a follower or a lover of Jesus. And yet, because of the promise of how God treats us in our disbelief and in our doubt, there are countless believers and followers of Christ who used to disbelieve. The fourth promise that we have here is the promise of God to include us in the mission. If you didn't catch that earlier in the Gospel of Mark, there is a mission. And of course, Jesus is on that mission in living a perfect life on behalf of sinners. And the second part of that mission is he's going to die a death for those sinners as an atoning sacrifice. And then the third part of that mission, which he begins to include us in that mission, and that is to go and tell the world. The entire gospel is encapsulated in that little word, go. What a powerful little word. Verse 7, go. He tells those women, go. Go. The angel there tells them, go tell his disciples. Notice also it says, go tell his disciples, including Peter. How beautiful the promise of God to include us including Peter, in this global gospel mission. Well, what's so significant about Jesus saying, including Peter? Well, you'll remember that Peter had denied Jesus right before Jesus is crucified. And so you wonder, is God going to use those kind of people to share this mission and to go and share this good news? And the answer is yes. God uses people like you and people like me because we are just like Peter and others who are failures at different times. And again, if you're thinking through this as as a marketing director somewhere, you may be thinking, this is a horrible marketing strategy. Why would God use broken people, failures, to go and share the message? I love that the angel did not say, go tell those losers and doubters that Jesus is risen. Or go tell Peter, that betrayer, that we need to have a little talk. Rather, go and tell the disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is risen and that he's not here. God includes the Peters of the world. God includes those who betray Jesus and deny Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, I still have plans for you. 
And that's such a wonderful promise for those of us who think, I must have blown it by now. God must be tired of giving me second and third and millionth chances. But remember this promise of how God includes us in this mission. is It's not that he wants to showcase us being strong, but it's in our weaknesses that he's going to be shown strong. It's not to celebrate the wonderful achievements of the church or superstars in the church. That's not what Go Proclaim the Mission is about. It's about celebrating God's wonderful promise that has come to fruition. That's what going and being a part of this mission is all about. Not that we have it all together, but that God has it all together. This resurrection promise is to go beyond us and is to go to the world. Look at verse 8, that Jesus sent them out from east to west with the unfailing message of salvation. You see, once again, everybody, not only is everybody trusting in some promise, but everybody is out there telling others about some promise. Everybody out there is going and telling someone, some narrative, some story in which others ought to be hanging on to and hanging their life upon. And I want to ask you, is this narrative, is the narrative and the promise of the resurrection, is this the narrative that you've hung your life on, that you're banking it all on? Or is the narrative that you're hanging your life on robust enough, strong enough, And great enough for the real cravings of your soul. And for the ups and downs of life. Thomas Merton, a a poet and social activist, in fact even a monk, told us that people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find that once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And we all climb it. It's called life. We all climb all sorts of ladders, but you begin to notice that you're not on the right wall. And sometimes we notice that we're not on the right wall when severe pain comes into our story, or loss comes into our story, or when severe love comes into our story. And that's what the resurrection is all about in this promise, is there's profound love coming into the narrative. I invite you to believe in the resurrection. If you're a believer, you say, oh, I already believe. And I say, believe again. Believe afresh. Keep living in that celebration. Take on that new identity day in, day out. See, the truest part of who you are is that you're in union with Christ. And that promise of the resurrection is for you. And if you're not believing, if you're one of my friends and you're not believing, place your hope in the promise of God because he, this is not a scam. This is good news for all who would believe. And in conclusion, we'll close with this fifth promise here. And remember how I started our talk today. I started it out with telling you about the fire festival, the greatest party that never happened. And the reason why 
the greatest party never happened is because the promise was a total scam. And that leads us to this fifth and final promise. Is that because of the, because of the resurrection, the promise of God is that there's a new ending to our story. There is going to be a great party and the greatest party that's ever been enjoyed and ever been experienced. Jesus, while he was taking communion with his disciples, he would go on to say to them, every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And as we know from other parts in Scripture, that when Christ returns, there's this promise of a great feast, of a great celebration, and a great party, the greatest party that that has ever taken place beyond your imagination, beyond what seems possible. And because the resurrection is true, the best is yet to come. Because the resurrection is true, our pain will not be the final word. Death will not be the final word. The suffering that you've gone through, the roadblocks that you've encountered along the way, because of the promise of the resurrection, that is not the final word or the final story. The promise of the resurrection gives us a new ending to our story. Psalm 30, the way our worship leader Juan began leading us this morning. Psalm 30 said, Lord God, you have turned our mourning, our crying, our sadness. You've turned it into dancing. You have taken away our funeral clothes and you've reclothed us in joy so that our whole being, body, mind, and soul might sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, our Lord, we will give thanks to you forever. 